This episode is the second part of our conversation with Patrick O'Mahony, this time all about their ambitious project Sea Monster in Western Supermare, one of the greatest pieces of industrial theatre that I have ever seen. It's a wonderful example of British creativity. So Patrick, you're the founder of New Substance. We first came across each other when you did the amazing Swarm Drone Jubilee celebrations above Buckingham Palace with the Corgis, which was just incredible. And then more research later, I found you employed 50 people in Leeds. And I just thought this really is the future of the uh, future of jobs and the future of working. Um, and then we spoke and you said, you've got to come and see one of our latest <laughs> installations, which is uh, here behind us, the Sea Monster. Yeah. Um, and I've been around it this morning and just completely bowled away by how something like this gets put together. I mean, mm. as with all things, perhaps best to start at the beginning uh, and you can explain in your words a bit about what the project is is about uh, in terms of sea monster and yeah. how it came to be yeah it's um you know it's quite an undertaking to say the least um i think the toughest project we've ever we've ever taken on you know it was such a a pure idea to start with but then the delivery of it was um like nothing we could ever imagine so in, in terms of how it came about we were uh, we were commissioned, so the UK government commissioned and boxed um, creativity in the UK. We were one of 10 big commissions across the UK um, in 2022. We assembled a team cross-sector from science, technology, engineering, maths and art. So people we never worked with before, that was the whole premise to the commission you had to work with, cross-sector and people that you never worked with before, which was, I suppose, very different to terms of how arts and entertainment normally work. We, we work within our circles and we use everyone we've always used before and you design in a very usual process, whereas this was much more about how do you start that conversation with a group of individuals not from those backgrounds? And then how do you create big, ambitious, inclusive projects? So we got this group of people together. We were in the height of COVID, so creativity over Zoom, some great politeness, so everyone's all very uncomfortable and, <laughs> you know, trying to design. And, and those people never designed on this kind of scale before. So you, it's very, very difficult to start with. Um but nice at the same time because it was quiet. I mean, entertainment was not busy yeah. uh, during COVID. So got this amazing group of people. And what came forward from that was, I suppose it was more stories that people wanted to tell. That's how people could ar articulate their vision better than going, let's do an oil rig. The rig came much further down the line in terms of that process. It was much more, you know, people were really keen to, if we're going to get a commission that this size, let's let's reuse something that exists. Let's not let's not build new. You know, we're very um we're always inclined to build new shiny things instead of and tear down the past instead of, you know, preserve it or reimagine it. You know, in this case we took something which has had a life over here as one de defined use and we've turned it into something very different. Um <clears throat> renewable energy, what's that conversation look like about the future of energy creation? And more playfully the great British weather, you know, part of our cultural identity Part of who we are, we always smile about it, we complain about it. <laughs> Wherever we go in the world, we talk about it. You know, how would you bring all those, wrestle them together? And by pure chance, I found we were originally looking at old forts off the coast of the UK, like abandoned big industrial structures. Uh, and that through a sequence of conversations, we found these graveyards of rigs up in Scotland and all around the world, these things, these monsters of the sea, that's the name. Um, that have this life and then have to go through this huge decommissioning process. And we, I suppose, pose the innocent question at the time, what happens if 
what happens if we could get one of these and we could reimagine it? And then that was like pushing the domino, basically. We couldn't get past that idea. And I, and I really thought, I suppose, when we first hit across the idea, everyone got really excited. I thought, it's going to get shot down. There's, you know, even And I'm pretty ambitious and optimistic <laughs> person. I thought, there is no way we're going to get hold of a structure that big out of an industry like that and be able to take it in the timeline we had because we were awarded, you know, we won this commission in like February last year to be then here where we are today is quite a, yeah, it's quite a short timeline. Um, but spoke to some guys in, you know, spoke to some guys in Scotland who move rigs basically is how it started. Some very dour guys rang them up out of the blue and said to them, would you reckon we can get hold of a rig? We want to do an art project with one. There were a lot of expletives kind of later, but with good humor to it. And and I won't do the accent. <laughs> and they were like, I suppose you could do, but no one's ever wanted to do that before. Why would you want to do it? I was like, don't worry about why we'd want to do it. Yeah. Do you reckon you could get us one? And, and that's where it started. We then they unlocked doors, conversations, and everyone started saying, yes, you know, people were like, well, it would be amazing if you could do this. Why would you want to do it? And you show them the ambition of what we were trying to do. Everyone was, and everyone just kind of lined up behind us. And then it, it before we knew it, we had a rigging principle and it kind of went from there. And how, just going back a step, that creative yeah. process, like how do you guys do that? I mean, we talked in the previous episode about loads of the amazing things and festivals and events you've done, but what sparks that kind of creative yeah, process? What was the what was the kind of request for proposal like from uh, Unboxed? Yeah, so the Unboxed was, um, you know, bold and ambitious, basically. You know, they wanted to reach 66 million people. They wanted to inspire a new generation, showcase creativity in the UK. What I also liked about it, I suppose, it was framed as an experiment in creativity. So it gave you that freedom mm. to think and to go, well, what hasn't been done before? What could we do? And I, and, and I think it's always hard, you know, when people say, where did you get the idea for X, Y, and Z from? There's, there's never a clear root to the idea and it was almost quite this time i we i found it very stressful in the sense that we had this amazing group of people you know from the british antarctic survey to rocket women to dosa society to ivan black like some really high caliber people um and we were forming all these ideas but they're almost looking to us to provide the platform to shape that into what the big moment was and then you start to feel that kind of creative pressure. It's almost like writer's block in that sense of, yeah. well, what is that big idea? What are we going to come up with which will win? And there's never, for me, it's never, I'm never sat at the desk, you know, in front of my computer when it comes up. It's always in the most random of places. In this case, I was locked down in a hotel in the Middle East on another show. I remember I was in a hotel, literally confined to a room for seven days, going stark, raving mad. And then by pure chance, the idea popped into my head. I remember seeing a picture of one of these, rigs and and that's that was the unlock basically i think it's so interesting. i think i think creativity like when we try and do sessions with a podcast either comes like best at the beginning of the day or actually at the end of the day when people are really tired <laughs> like because then they sort of look for shortcuts like right. and actually that can kind of work really well in a way i think and it's um it, it's interesting that kind of like process and how you you kind of make it happen particularly given the amount that you have have done on it um and it's one of these mr moaners slightly i think about uh, entrepreneurship and creativity is the sort of light bulb moment. And actually, it's, it's never like that. It's I always talk about it being one of those old sort of strobe lights. It takes a few times to kind of 100%. Because I also think you don't believe... So when when I first thought about it, it wasn't like a big eureka moment. It wasn't like, that. that's, that's it. it. That's yeah, it. Yeah. That's absolutely nailed on. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that could be quite interesting. And then you start to sketch it up and it looks a bit better. And then you start to soundboard it off a few people. And they were a bit like, 
Yeah, you know, and it, I suppose it gathers, the more then it develops as an idea, the more support you get, the better the visuals start to build on it. Then you start to realize, yeah, that is actually, the, that's the one, that's what we should do. Very rarely do I think, you know, that's, you see it straight away. I remember when we did Coachella for the first time, what became Spectre, which is our installation there, was I think the fourth idea in the deck that we put together of the creative, it wasn't our favorite idea. It was like, it was number four in, in the entire proposal deck. But then it kind of, it was like the outside horse. It started to gather pace. The more we looked at it, the more we did with them. Before we knew it, we were like, oh, actually, that's, that's the one we should be going for. And that's the one we did there as well. Amazing. And so what happens to these rigs, platforms, when they're, you know, what, what normally is the process that they go through yeah, to be decommissioned? N- normally they're, they're cut out of the, removed out of the sea and then recycled, you know, scrapped basically. Hmm. And, you know, and that was the interesting thing. People have been looked, looked at reuse for a long time now. So it, there's like a pyramid of kind of what should happen or what is proposed to happen. And reuse sits at the very top. Because, but because it's such a long process normally, like five to six years in terms of planning for these things, no one's ever cracked it before or had the reason to crack it first, especially for arts and culture. There, there aren't the opportunities, I suppose, to kind of go, oh, it wouldn't be amazing if we did a huge art installation like this. So... You know, for us to sit there and kind of go, we would like to do this, the support we then got, but also what we had to do to get hold of the rig, it was incredibly hard in terms of, you know, the paperwork didn't exist for us to do what we wanted to do with it. I think that's the that's the power of, you know, I suppose that entrepreneurial approach, that arts and culture, because we were just like, if we'd known at the start of it, what would it take to get here? Would we have gone forward with it? Probably not. But I think that's that wonderful kind of sense of, creativity and journey ambition at the start where you kind of go right whatever it needs now we're going to do this and we kept driving it forward but in that process created a a little blueprint I suppose for how this can be done so you know we've already had people in last week from the states who want us to look at a project out there using one we've got uh, people from the Middle East coming in next week because like our little flares gone up now across the world to kind of go well they've done this with this one here although very small and now people come in to us oh we would like to do a bird sanctuary on here we'd like to do a gallery uh, underwater on the legs and they want to learn from what we've done and that's the amazing kind of ripple effect that we're now starting to see so how do you move it from scotland to western this was in um this was in the netherlands this one so it got cut out of the north sea went to netherlands to be clean so all the nasty stripped out of it and then we were going to cut it up and move it by truck originally. Um, but some amazing Dutch people were like, um, you can sail this in. And we're like, we're in Western Supermare with like the biggest tidal range in yeah, yeah. in the UK. You know, you've got about that much water um, at high tide. And they were like, no, we can, we can do this. So it became an amazing part of the project because the sense of industrial theater that then came. So we lift it as an entire structure. So the framework without all the creative overlay on it was lifted onto a barge, a barge the size of a football pitch. And then there was one day in each month where we could get into Western where the tide was the highest, where it came right up to the back of the trop. And then- One day a month. One day a month. So you had a sailing window. And then you also had permit land over here where everyone's trying to work out how on earth they're gonna allow you to move this between the Netherlands and the UK. It's classed as waste, like a whole world of pain over there. 
So, you know, five o'clock in the morning, the, the barge arrived. We beached it on the beach, um, two big sea anchors holding it in position, and then what we call um, multi-axle movers, so these things that you see on the Discovery Channel that move entire buildings, drove down the beach. Um, we pulled the rig across onto it. It drove back up the beach, and then a single crane, one of the biggest ones in the UK, lifted it as a, a single structure onto its brand new legs. It was uh, amazing, but equally terrifying uh, three, four days of my life. Um, I, I can imagine. And the crane to put it together, like how big yeah, was that? It is enormous. So literally there's three of them in the country and um, it was enormous, like 250 tonne crane basically. Wow. Lifted it as a single unit. So the entire top side of the rig that you can see there, it lifted up on a single hook uh, off the movers and onto its brand new legs. It was a, it was a tough watch. And I can imagine. I love the phrase you used earlier, industrial theatre. Yeah, like, very much so. We had crowds of thousands out for three days because it's like it was like this invasion almost. It was like so otherworldly, I suppose. A, to see a structure like this up close. B, it arrive out of nowhere onto the beach. And then the size of the machinery that was then involved with it, it was... For me, it was like it was part of the, it was part of our whole installation. So that was like chapter one. The arrival was part of the entire theatre of the whole project of Sea Monster. And how do you go about costing something like this at the beginning, right? Because doing all, I mean, this must be so difficult to know how to, yeah, how to do. It. And there must be so many, you know, I mean, known unknowns, unknown unknowns. I mean, it just must be enormous trying to go yeah. something like this. It's 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 not straightforward. I suppose we were. We had to break it down into sections of the project. So we knew that um, we knew we could get the rig. So we knew we had our base structure. Yeah. Um, we then worked with a company called Mammut who move huge things all the time. So they were very clear about what it would cost to move from A to B. So we, we, those bits were known. And then weirdly, stage three, in effect, is making it look like it does now. Yeah. So the new legs, you know, the garden, the amphitheater, the slide, which is is much more common, I suppose, to our world. So we know what we're doing there in an operations team um, on top of that. So whilst... That was well, the easy bit, just yeah, that, re <laughs> repurposing it. <laughs> repurposing it, putting the trees on it and everything else is the Simple. least stressful of all of it. Doing it in the time we had was, you know, an eight-week turnaround on the fit-out was l less... Um, less fun because it was so tight but i suppose whilst it's crazy on one level and so mind-blowingly big it follows a certain set of principles that we that we do with all of our projects and where we had unusual gaps like you know giant barges 90 meters wide and yeah. all that we we had specialists that came in same with the engineers that came in from the very beginning so we we could almost take it into bite-sized pieces with healthy you know contingencies for unknowns along the way and what's the talk to us about different jobs? I mean, you've alluded yeah. to some of them there, but but the different jobs involved in putting something Quite like this together. Yeah, so I think this is the broadest of all the shows we've ever done, um, and that argument, you know, of this is very much where creativity had to run across every single department because we couldn't have any conventional thinkers on the project. We had to have creative thinkers in every possible department, or else we just couldn't work with him. And along the way, I had to get rid of quite a few people who couldn't follow the ambition and the dream. And I'll, I'll come back to that, especially in terms of renewable energy. So, you know, in terms of who we had on this, we had um, myself driving the creative vision, I suppose, you know, I would like it to look like this. <laughs> very, yeah. very simple, that part of it. Um, you then have a huge engineering team. So we have in-house engineers, 
Mike Birch, who led from our side, but then we had Atelier One, who you know did Gardens by the Bay in Singapore and Kapoor's Bean. So really clever, creative engineers who you know most people wouldn't take on something like this. You don't know what that rig is, the life it's lived for twenty five years in the North Sea, and we want to now do a very different job by having walkways on it and trees and gardens. So a very very big engineering team, um, which spread across a the structure itself, but Mamut who brought it here. Um, you then have the fabrication team, you know, multiple fabricators from all around the world, from waterfalls that we've got on it to the pool, to the kinetics, to the big sculptures on there. So you kind of got that fit out and overlay team. We then have a huge education and outreach, you know, in terms of that conversation about what we're trying to talk about with the sea monster. So it, it just keeps kind of getting bigger and bigger. You know, you, you kind of undo the onion. You're like, There's a creative idea here, but then you've got the engineering to do it. You've got to make it. You've got to deliver it. You've got to operate it. You've got to talk about it. You've got to educate with it. So it kind of gets, kind of goes out like this. But at every step of the way, I suppose we were, we're always striving to find people that could go on that journey with us. You know, the renewables on there, was a, a small part of the story to, to start with, but it came much, much bigger because we, we had these consultants to start with who wrote these wonderfully big reports for us about the future of um, renewable energy. And we said to them, you know, we, we want to experiment with this rig. It's not necessarily about creating the most amount of energy. It's about um, what happens when art and design start to intersect that space. What happens when the artists get hold of the solar panels and the wind turbines? And to start with, they were like, absolutely. They came to us with a report. And the suggestion for the wind turbine was a, a big white wind turbine. And the suggestion on solar was big sheets of solar that we could put around the outside of the sea monster. And I was like, that is not, um, that's not going to work. No, yeah. That's not the point of the brief. And, that, and in, in this meeting, we were there, he, the, the lead consultant said to me, yeah, but the problem is if artists get involved in the engineering, the design process, it becomes too expensive and becomes impractical. I was like, okay, t tell me some more about that. And his example then was a chair. He said to me, if an artist designs a chair, it becomes very expensive, it becomes very uncomfortable. I was like, I think we are fundamentally at opposing <laughs> ends of the spectrum here. Um, so we uh, consciously uncoupled from that consultant <laughs> and found some amazing people in the States called Land Art Generator who are out of Burning Man, um, who have been running sustainable design competitions for like 20 years. And I was like, right, wh wh who is out there right now like that is reimagining this space? Like, like, how can renewable energy be part of placemaking for cities and for schools and everything else? You need to design something which is um, creatively informed so it can it, you could produce it and put it in these places and it look amazing. So they brought us a, an artist called Trevor Lee who'd been trying to make the wind nest for like six years, which is the wind turbines you see up there. And then we internally designed the solar tree, which is the big structural form with all the solar on top of it. Because uh, we, we wanted to provoke the conversation of a sculptural form, which then starts to inform the technology. And our system up there now powers the whole of the garden that's up there, all the irrigation yeah. system and everything else. Because we, we wanted to see what happens when that space starts to change the conversation. Yes, right now there are some very efficient solutions out there, but are they going to be across the entire cities, probably not. That's why they, they live on the outskirts in farmland and everything else where you can do it on scale and it's less invasive. What happens if you could have a, a boulevard of solar trees or wind nests within a city centre and that powers that street? It's, it's starting to pick at the sides of that and the whole 
point of this project was that cross-sector collaboration to understand what that space could look like. And what, I mean, one of the things that I think is a, a slight shame about this is that it won't be here forever or it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a short period of time. Where do you think the future of sustainability and the long-term aspect of design and creative design sits? I think it's, um, I suppose that's what we wanted to do with this project. It's like, we are here for a short time. We're a short commission in that sense. Um, but I suppose what we're trying to eyeball is what comes after this. And I think, and the whole point is that cross-sector collaboration. Industries work within industries, don't they? Like, you know your industry, we know our industry, and you work in those channels over here. But what we did find, I suppose, through this project is when you do start to cross the streams, like the conversations do start to change a lot. So we'd have never, well, we'd have never done something like this without those different minds from different areas looking at the same time. In, in terms of renewables, I do hope there there is more scope um, for that conversation of design in that space because I think it's then a lot more accessible. It's a lot more achievable. It's like, you know, what Apple did to the phone in that sense. That was, It was a functional device before that. Apple came along, transformed everything, turned it into a desirable brand, mm-hmm. everything else. If, if, if you can interject that art and design piece, I think it can very much change that that three road of what things can look like and then the adoption of it on a mass scale. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can, I can see that. And how supportive have the, well, I understand the local council have been pretty supportive yeah, of this. How big of a uh, difference did that make? Cause I understand it was a old Lido that hasn't been yes. used for many decades. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I suppose, you know, one of the benefits on this project is we had very good partners in terms of unboxed, um, in terms of the government, in terms of um, North Somerset Council, you know, we were already doing something quite prickly, bringing a, an old platform like this and putting it on a beach. So we needed people who were with us from the very beginning. We couldn't just go anywhere and do this. You know, we needed that ambition to be leveled with what we were trying to do. And they were great from the very beginning. You know, the, the Lido sat here and it's been great. You know, it's had events here and, and has mm. a, a thriving kind of trade in terms of what it is. But I suppose we came along, Dismaland was here with Banksy a few years ago. That set an ambition bar quite high. And this was like the next step. So they were like, this would be an amazing parallel for us now to move further. You know, the old Lido was like its old heritage. It's that British seaside moment to bring something so different like this to it, provided that next next phase in its life. But also I think, you know, when we first approached them, they were very keen, like bringing here lots of attention, lots of investment, great. But, you know, we had a rocky road in terms of getting it here. And in terms of, you know, we're doing something first time in the world that sadly there's no user manual. And when things get hard, there's no one you can call. Um, and that's when you know if people are really with you. And we were, we were delayed in terms of getting in here to start with, but they were with us every step of the way. Same with the Unboxed as well. Everyone rallied around and were like, this has to happen. We have to make it so important to make this happen right now. Everyone very much stood by us and that's what got us through and that's what got us here really. So inspiring like conversations about climate, uh, yeah, inspiring conversations about the climate and so on. It almost seems counterintuitive to have an oil rig, but that adds to it in, in so many ways. What else have you done to kind of use this as a hub to have those conversations? Yeah, so, you know, we've got a huge outreach scheme. So in terms of locally here, in terms of, I think we've had 50,000 um, school children engaged with the project, big wow. um, national assembly we did on it. I suppose what we're trying to do as well is is tell that story in a positive way. The whole point of the Sea Monster was that it's a big ambition. You come here and you can't not be 
um, amazed by it. Whether you like it, whether you don't like it, that's fine. But you can't not have an opinion on it. Yeah. And I think that that was part of the, the part of the point. We wanted to do something really big, really ambitious, really playful. You know, we have a slide on there. We have the cloud portal where you can get wet. We have the big waterfall. We wanted to frame that conversation in very much a forward-looking way. You know, everyone. You know, the rigs, everyone's been part of that whole process. They live offshore, you never see them. They're huge feats of engineering in themselves, but they've all contributed to where we are today. But now there's that moment in time where you can kind of go, right, that's that's got us where we are now. How do we propel forward? It's why we have that conversation about renewables on there. It's why we've got the big schools program, the university program, um, and, and things like where we are today, the studio. We've got lots of broadcasters who've come through the space to, again, frame that conversation about kind of future use, reuse, renewables, and what that can look like. So I think it's, we, we all hear about it. There's lots of obviously active conversation about where we are kind of globally, climate-wise. But I think when you can frame it with something like this, when you have like a big physical item to frame that conversation, it's far easier to have that conversation with people and, and frame where that could go. It makes it so much more real as well. Right? I think yeah. that's what's, you know, the, the industrial theatre, the art point about this stuff, like really sticks home because I think it's one of the things that we really is a challenge in the modern world is sometimes people don't see the kind of consequence of their actions yeah. as, as, as much. Um, and yeah, it's really inspiring to sort of see it here and see what you've done with it. Where did the idea for the waterfall come from? <laughs> the waterfalls literally, I think has been there almost since day one. We wanted to, with, with the sea monster, we wanted to make sure it had that sense of personality to it. So the waterfall was always the roar of the sea monster. It was like that, tonal description of what it was um it had that sense of play to it we knew we'd get a huge amount of drift on it that kids would then play and jump in the water everyone likes getting wet it's like jumping in puddles isn't it so it was that that playful note but it's very much that audio signature as you move throughout the structure from the roar at the basement the scales that we have on it the kinetic which has the lovely little sound to it right up to the top when you're in the amphitheater we wanted to make sure as you move through each level had like a, a different experience to it yeah no when you said jumping in puddles uh for the rest of your answer i just had the concept of um i just had the pepper pig jumping in muddy puddles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. splish splash splosh running in my head it's a well-trodden path <laughs> yeah yeah exactly we've all, we've all been through it what's the the kind of future for pop-up installations because we've talked a bit about you know how it's you know again a lot easier to do these things but it's amazing the kind of scope of work you've taken on to sort of move an oil rig yeah. to ship it across seas and continents like what is the future of pop-up installations? What other exciting things are you working on? Um, I think it's a really interesting space, especially um, in that you know post-COVID world. I think the physicality of placemaking with things like this, be it um, in towns or cities or be it big moments like the World Expo, where people physically contribute um, to that moment, I, th I think it really has that sense of community to it. So mm. what we've done here is reimagine a, a site which was, disused for many years in a you know iconic british seaside town it's free and we're you know we're seeing between four and eight thousand people a day coming through the space it's 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 kind of you know it's not just locally either it's kind of we're going nationally internationally people coming in to see it and i suppose that's that's what these physical structures can do it kind of goes back to that conversation about you know people always call it about digital versus physical but i think whilst the digital world has accelerated massively in that post covid world i think the physicality of big installations drives reactions it drives people to experience it in the first sense and i don't think you'll ever get away from that because it 
having a, a physical reaction to something with a shared experience, I think is still more powerful than anything else. Yeah, we talked a bit about in the first episode in yeah. terms of the more artsy projects that you're doing that people you know, want the sort of social media, Instagrammable thing behind it. I mean, it is fascinating. You have built an entire media hub here. Like, it's pretty incredible that now, again, that's that's not, again, that difficult to, to do. Um, how much do you think the sort of future of that kind of like yeah we talk about the experience economy yeah. growing but one of the things that i think is interesting about the experience economy is that the difference with it with social media yeah. is that they can now be captured forever yes. so it sort of becomes a product and a thing and a material in itself that you put online and can kind of look back on yeah and I, I just love your thoughts on that i think it's um it's also you have um much more instantaneous feedback as well that's the other yeah. different thing um, you know, previously you had, um, you, you design a piece or an installation or an event or a moment, and it was reviewed by a, a select group of people. And that was your feedback. Now from the second we, um, launched this, we had instant feedback, good and bad in terms of what we were doing, why we're doing it. Everybody who comes through here, captures it, shares it. So <clears throat> a, a, you get to see your own work from a totally different point of view. I always find it really interesting. You've designed this and we designed this for, you know, one and a half years in advance with a very clear route of how we thought people would experience it, move through it. As soon as we open the doors, everyone treats it totally differently. Mm. And it's never how you've originally designed it, how people respond to it. But I think that's, that's the beauty of, of where we're heading with the experience economy. A, the feedback is more more varied and more instantaneous, so you know what works, what doesn't work. Also, in terms of people's um, expectation, hunger for it, they're very used to previously going to a theatre, sitting in a seat for 90 minutes with an interval. It's there, they go home, whereas now they have the freedom to explore. You know, the, the, the scope of the immersive and the experience economy now is so vast mm. and, and people want more. They want to be... Um, included in it as part of the theatre. They want to be able to create, curate their own journey through it. Then they create their own content. So they're creating their own experience through your product. It may be not how you intended it to be, but you're giving them more now. I think that it, you're giving them a platform more for the experience. So people coming in here and make their their own journey. We were very clear that we won't put any signposts, that we won't educate people about trying to force our narrative um on our audience, we'll let people go around here and, and interpret it how they want to in terms of what we're trying to do here. And then we see that now in terms of how that gets amplified, people telling their own stories about how they see some monster and how that's influenced them as well. Yeah, I think that sort of, I mean, I guess you don't do this as much, but the character development of things and, and becoming much more deeper ingrained, you know, coming at it from the podcast world as you'd expect me to. But it, it is interesting how you're getting more kind of like podcast spin-offs of shows and stuff because people want yet deeper and deeper experiences yeah. of, of some things. You know, some people just want to watch the show or whatever. But yeah, I think that's... Um, We've got the same here as well. We have people, you know, who come through, just move the experience. They're in and out in maybe 20 minutes. We have other people who've been here for like half a day, sat on the amphitheater at the top, we have hosts as well, which is the big driver here. So people who can animate and advocate the space. So if you want to find more about, you know, what's going on on each level, you can talk to those people. It's not a recorded message. It's not a plaque. It's a it's a real human there that's been on the journey creatively with us and, and knows about the project. And I think that's the nice thing about experiences like this and more in that experience economy. You can you can make of that what you want. It can be a short, sharp, twenty minute experience, or you can really dive in and get into the detail over an, a number of hours with it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's fascinating. One final question. Yeah. Who's the most 
interesting entrepreneur that you've come across that we should interview essentially for the show, our oh. Pass the Mic show? So I think you may be actually um, interviewing him. So for me, and it's not, there's obviously all the big ones like, you know, you're Stephen Bartlett, you're Elon Musk, all those, which are great and inspiring. But Amit Patel, who's been on this project with us, um, who lost his sight a number of years ago. He worked with us on accessible design. He's the single most incredible person that I, I've ever come across because he sees the view literally from a totally different viewpoint, but has such an inspirational and can articulate it far better than anyone else in terms of his journey that he's been on in terms of from where he was career-wise and where he is now. 100% you should speak to him. Brilliant. Well, we'll get, we'll get him on the show soon. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been brilliant Fantastic. to have you twice. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.